The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Case in Point, Addressing Practical Questions to Improve Long-Term Outcomes in Patients with Obesity. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KEW860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Juan Frias. I'm an endocrinologist in Los Angeles, California. I'm the medical director and principal investigator at Velocity Clinical Research. Thank you for joining me for Case in Point, addressing practical questions to improve long-term outcomes in patients with obesity. Today, we'll discuss winning the long game in obesity management, namely helping patients lose weight early and keep it off. We know that obesity is a problem in the United States and across the world, and obesity prevalence is increasing at a very high rate. We can see here from these maps in 2011, which are color-coded with the redder or more orange colors representing higher incidence or prevalence of obesity in states, to 2021, where we have up to 42% of patients, adults in the United States, with obesity or a BMI of over 30. And not only is it increasing, but it has a very complex etiology, which makes it more difficult to manage. On a background of genetic predisposition, their physiologic factors, such as altered levels of hormones and gastrointestinal peptides, behavioral factors, such as diet, poor diet, I should say, inactivity and emotional factors, as well as environmental factors, socioeconomic status, many of the social determinants of health, which are part of the etiology. Not only common and complex, but also there are many complications or comorbidities of obesity. And these really span the organ systems, if you will, from obstructive sleep apnea to fatty liver disease to polycystic ovarian syndrome to cardiovascular disease, including stroke and coronary heart disease, type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, hypertension, certain cancers as well. So many conditions that are either result of obesity or associated with obesity. And we know that early intervention can help not only prevent these complications, but in patients who already have them, can help in ameliorating them and sometimes even in reversing them. So we need to intervene early to delay the, um, these issues and treat these issues that are associated with obesity. And we know that weight loss can make significant improvements. Even modest weight loss of three to 5% can, um, can lead to significant improvements in glycemic control, in lipids. And as we progress to greater weight loss, there's greater benefit, not only in the metabolic, but also biomechanical and psychological aspects of obesity, and with weight loss greater than 15%, there could be a reduction in cardiovascular events, an improvement in mortality, and even remission of type 2 diabetes. So again, early intervention and using the tools we have to lose as much weight as possible and maintain that weight loss is critically important. So how do I discuss the need to prioritize obesity management with patients? Let's hear from a typical patient that may come to our clinic with the issue of obesity. Hey, Doc. Uh, my name is Mike Barnes. I'm here because today because I really need your help. Um, I, my doctor's been on me. My primary care physician's been on me to uh, lose weight, um, which I've been trying to do. So I was a wrestler in high school and college, uh, so I'm an athlete. And uh, 
so I had a knee thing. So my knee finally feels better. So I was able to get back to the gym. And uh, I work out about one to two times a week for about an hour, but really hard, like an hour, hour and 15. Um, and so I have what I haven't noticed is uh, the normal results that I get uh, when I work out. Uh, so I, I've been I've been continuing to do it. But I saw these guys in the gym who were about my age, um, but they are in amazing shape. Uh, and I overheard them talking about testosterone that they uh, had gotten. So I had a conversation with them. Uh, they referred me to a website, which quite honestly looked a little sketchy. So I wasn't cool with uh, going there. Um, but I went back to my primary care physician, explained my workout regimen and that I was, uh, you know, really trying to get drop the weight, but I wasn't seeing the results and, um, and asked for testosterone. And he turned me down flat because I don't think he really understands from a former athlete's perspective. Um, you know, I'm able to to drop and gain weight uh, as I needed to. Uh, and again, it's really harder. So I wanted to come to you uh, and really talk about getting testosterone today to really help accelerate my weight loss. So that's why I'm here. So to summarize, Mike has a number of issues. He's 52 years old. He is obese with a BMI of 36. He has type 2 diabetes, not too poorly controlled with an A1C of 6.8%. But his blood pressure is not a target. We're aiming for less than 130 over 80. His LDL cholesterol is high, specifically for someone with type 2 diabetes at 124 milligrams per deciliter. And he has many of the comorbidities or complications of obesity. He has type 2 diabetes. He likely has fatty liver disease, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and sleep apnea. If we look at his medications, He's taking metformin extended release at 1,500 milligrams daily, a low dose for him of resuvastatin, 10 milligrams once daily. He's on blood pressure medication, so an ACE inhibitor with hydrochlorothiazide, and taking um, non-steroidals for the knee pain that he's had that he tells us in the video has resolved and he's been able to get back to the gym. And what he really wants at this point, what he heard from his friends at the gym, is he wants a testosterone prescription that his PCP did not give him. Now, over the years, Mike's weight has increased, and this is something that we see, and this actually comes from the Framingham Heart Study, the offspring cohort, and looks at patients with various starting BMIs and looks over time, so age on the x-axis, and we can see that irrespective of the starting BMI, over time, there is an increase in BMI or in body weight. When we talk to someone like Mike or anyone with, um, with obesity, motivational interviewing is a very important technique. So this is somewhere in between just passive listening to a patient and absolutely just telling the patient what they should do. I mean, if we look at the five A's of motivational interviewing, first one, ask. We certainly need to ask for permission to discuss body weight. This sometimes could be a bit awkward, but we do need to open the conversation with making sure that it's okay with the patient for us to have this dis discussion. We need to explore as we're talking to the patient, their readiness to change. And we'll talk about that um, in, in a few slides here. We need to assess. We need to assess the patient's BMI, their waist circumference, their obesity stage. This will have an impact as well as 
what complications they have of this excess weight of their obesity, this will impact what, um, what therapy we should consider and also what weight loss goals should be considered as well. We need to advise, I think this is very important, we need to advise not or specifically about the health risks of obesity. I think this becomes critically important and also realistic weight loss goals as we discussed previously that it doesn't take that much weight loss modest, moderate weight loss can have very important metabolic benefits and benefits on other complications of obesity. We need to also advise on the importance of a long-term strategy, not short-term as maybe Mike has done in the past, and treatment options, both benefits and risks of treatment options. We need to agree, so this is shared decision-making on a realistic weight loss, not only expectations, but targets, what behavioral changes will the patient will undergo, and specific details of the treatment plan. Again, being very specific um, so that the patient actually um, is in agreement with this and can follow up. And then we need to arrange and assist. So assist in identifying barriers and provide resources to the patient, assist in finding appropriate um, healthcare providers of the referrals that are needed. This is extremely important for nutritional counseling, behavioral counseling perhaps as well, and then arrange regular follow-up. So the five A's, ask, assess, advise, agree, and arrange and assist. And it's very important as we discuss with patients our communication strategies really to, to reduce stigma and reduce even implicit bias that often occurs with um, inpatients or with patients um, with obesity. And also this will improve well-being. So words and actions really do matter. Now, with respect to the, the um, stages of change, this is very important to sort of meet the patient or to know where they are in this um, stage of change, if you will, for them to be able to then make the change and follow the plan. So these, change, these stages include preconception, so the patient at this point may be unaware of the problem. I think this is where it's very important to discuss the potential health risks of obesity and overweight, contemplation, Preparation, so then making plans to change now and action. This is when the patient is ready or we feel the patient is ready to make a change. And as they're following their plan, there's a maintenance phase and many patients will relapse. And then we need to go back, not necessarily to the beginning, to pre-contemplation, but back to the action plan. And I frequently tell patients, you know, if you slip up, if there's an issue, if your weight loss stagnates, that's okay. We just need to start with the plan again and for them not to, to beat themselves up, if you will. And I think it's important to put into context as well how to view obesity as a disease. If we look on the left is the old assumption that purposeful behavior by the patient drives the physiology or drives the obesity at the end of the day, that increased caloric intake drives weight gain, the physical activity causes weight loss directly by burning calories, that this really sort of puts the burden, if you will, on the patient, and that the solution to this is to eat less and exercise more. But as we've become to understand obesity much more, the new approach really is that physiologic regulation of energy balance drives behavior. So this is a physiologic issue that's driving this behavior leading to obesity. And this is illustrated very nicely as we talk about the homeostatic regulation of the set point. So we each have a set point 
for body weight and which, which is very tightly regulated. So if we look, and this is regulated centrally. So if we look at the, the graphic, when there is weight loss, what ends up happening is that there's a reduction in energy expenditure and their metabolic signals that increase the drive for appetite. There's a reduction, for example, in leptin concentrations and increase in ghrelin, which sort of in a sense brings our patients or tries to bring our patient back to the set point. And likewise, when there's weight gain, there is an increase in energy expenditure and metabolic signals, so hormonal signals, to drive or to decrease the appetite drive. So derivation from this set point elicits physiologic compensatory mechanisms controlling food intake and energy expenditure. And this is why it's very difficult for a patient not only to lose weight, but to maintain that weight loss and why today's medications can be very effective as an adjunct to lifestyle changes. Now, going specifically to Mike, we saw that, that he was a wrestler. He mentioned in his video that he oftentimes could lose weight or gain weight very quickly. And this is an interesting study. It was a survey that was done of wrestlers, Greco-Roman, women wrestlers, and freestyle wrestlers, looking at the various ways in which they lost weight. And some of these you know, somewhat healthy. If we look all the way on the left, gradual dieting. We saw a lot of the women did this in particular, but some not very healthy, fasting, um, training in heated rooms, saunas. So basically you become dehydrated, even spitting and, and laxatives. And what was found here is that these, these wrestlers could lose a lot of weight, but then post-match, there was a lot of weight increase and similar weight cycling occurs in other so-called combat sports as well. And this um, faulty training regimen or, and, you know, very fast way of losing weight, which is not healthy, can encourage disordered eating and exercise patterns and, and is clearly not healthy. What's important to understand with the treatment of obesity is that just like hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, long-term chronic management is required. And what's seen here is the reduction of body weight with some intervention, this could be diet exercise with or without, um, with or without pharmacotherapy, and then maintenance therapy. But if that is stopped, you see the increase in body weight. And this has been seen across studies with different methodologies of weight loss. So this is a chronic disease requiring long-term chronic management. So if we, if we speak specifically about, about testosterone, because this is what uh, Mike came to the, to the clinic for, is, is PCP emphatically said, no, he wasn't going to get it. And he came to the endocrinologist to me because he wanted testosterone therapy. And we certainly have seen as of late and um, that, that testosterone ads are, are all over the place for men of all ages um, with, with claims about increased strength, virility, weight loss. There's a lot of interest in, in this um, based on this, this advertising. But it's important to note, though, that testosterone is not approved as an anti-obesity medication, although it does have modest favorable effects on body composition in patients with type 2 diabetes. But the patient would need to be proven to, to have hypogonadism. So it is inappropriate to replace testosterone in per persons with type 2 diabetes, or quite frankly, anyone who does not have true hypogonadism. And in the case of Mike, who has sleep apnea, sleep apnea is a contraindication for testosterone therapy, particularly if he's not hypogonadal. 
and testosterone um, therapy can increase the risk of obstructive um, sleep apnea as well. So if we look at obesity um, therapy, we have sort of the pillars, if you will, of obesity therapy, nutritional intervention, physical activity, behavioral therapy, critically important, irrespective of whether we're going to use more advanced therapies, which would be pharmacotherapy and bariatric or metabolic procedures. And there are currently five FDA-approved long-term um, drugs for long-term use in patients with obesity. So this includes the two GLP-1 receptor agonists, loraglutide and semaglutide, combination pills, naltrexone with bupropion, amphetamine with topiramate, and also the pancreatic lipase inhibitor, Orlistat. And then um, for it being actually reviewed by the FDA currently and in phase three development is the dual GIP and GLP-1 receptor agonist, terzepatide. So when and why anti-obesity medications are a good option? Again, this is why going back to the beginning of, of this section, um, why it's important to, to assess the patient and assess their BMI, because this is going to play a role in um, what therapies we should consider and also their obesity-related complications. So certainly in a patient who is obese with a BMI of over 30, if lifestyle intervention is not effective, whether they have or don't have an obesity-related complication, which the vast majority of these patients will have, we can consider anti-obesity medication. And then if the BMI is over 27 and there's at least one obesity-related complication, we should also consider anti-obesity therapy uh, medication. And we need to treat obesity first. So um, this helps better manage obesity-related complications, reduces the risk of developing further complications, as we talked about previously, and can improve overall health and quality of life. So again, early intervention to address these multiple potential complications and comorbidities is, um, is very important. And if we look at the mechanisms of action of the, of the FDA-approved anti-obesity medications, we have the combination medications you see at the top, which act centrally. So naltrexone, which is an opioid receptor antagonist, and bupropion, which is an antidepressant, which increases dopamine and norepinephrine concentrations, fentramine and topiramate, fentramine being a sympathomimetic agent, again, increasing um, norepinephrine, and topiramate, a, um, an anti-seizure medication, actually, which modulates the GABA receptors. We see fentramine on its own, which is not approved for long-term use, but for short-term use. Um, hydrogel, these are hydrogel particles in a capsule. They actually, in the stomach, they expand, so they're volume enhancers. They're not absorbed, and they increase satiety. This is not, though, a pharmacotherapy. Um, um, Orlistat, which is a pancre pancreatic lipase inhibitor, which reduces the digestion and the absorption of dietary fats, and the GLP-1 receptor agonist, the two that are approved, liraglutide once daily and semaglutide injectable once weekly. And these agents act centrally to reduce appetite and increase satiety, and they have some effect which generally there's a tachyphylaxis to with gastric emptying. There are other medications, nutrient-stimulated hormone-based medications that are in clinical development. Furthest along is terzepatide, which is an agonist 
of both of the um, incretin receptors, GIP and GLP-1. So a number of agents, five agents that are currently approved with different mechanisms of action. And if we look here at the, the agents that, that are approved, including hydrogel, we see some of the, the effects on different um, cardiovascular risk factors. They all reduce waist circumference. I think we need to be careful with naltrexone and bupropion with respect to a transient increase in blood pressure, so contraindicated in patients who have, um, who have uncontrolled hypertension, also an increase in heart rate. Um, and if we look across, we have um, positive reductions with all of them with respect to lipids and the most potent with respect to the A1C. So perhaps for a patient like Mike who has type 2 diabetes would be the GLP-1 receptor agonist, loraglutide and semaglutide. And if we look at outcomes, and here shown is um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. There are data, though no medication is currently approved specifically for that disorder with the GLP-1 receptor agonist. And quite importantly, also with loraglutide and semaglutide, there's an improvement in cardiovascular risk, cardiovascular events in patients with pre-existing cardiovascular disease. So this is something also to take into consideration. So let's look at some key takeaways. So obesity is an increasingly prevalent chronic disease that has a complex multifactorial physiology and shares risk factors with other cardiometabolic diseases. Body image is an important motive for weight loss in both men and women, although we really need to, stre to stress the health benefits of weight loss. Non-evidence-based interventions for weight loss, such as testosterone that we saw in Mike's case, are heavily marketed for persons with obesity. There are health benefits associated with modest, even 5% weight loss and more substantial weight loss, greater than 10%, for example, to prevent associated comorbidities and complications. And we shouldn't hesitate to initiate a discussion with when weight management is advised and or indicated, especially when the potential risks of excess weight over the long term are not fully appreciated by the patient. So I think this is very important to stress to the patient as we're sort of going down this journey to, to make sure that they're ready to make the change is the importance of these health benefits and even the modest weight loss. Early intervention for obesity reduces the risk of downstream complications and comorbidities, and there are several evidence-based anti-obesity medications approved for long-term management. And before presenting treatment options, assess readiness for change. So asking for permission from the patient, using motivational interviewing, and getting the patient ready to make the change and to follow the plan that you make together for this weight loss. My name is Yasmin Ellison. I'm a 37-year-old wife, and I have been married for about five years now to my wonderful husband, and we are very much looking forward to becoming parents, to starting a family. I've been working with my OBGYN and talking with him for a couple of years now about our goals of, of starting a family. And we talked a lot about one of the, the solutions for me might be weight loss that might help me on that journey. And so we started out with physical activity and diet. I made a lot of changes in terms of the way that I was eating and trying to, to be a little more active. 
And I have a really a full schedule. One of the biggest challenges that I've had in this journey is, is in the discussions with my OBGYN. I'm working really hard. I'm, you know, getting physical activity where I can. I've changed my diet. I'm doing what was recommended. And I feel like in many ways, when we talk about it, that he's not really hearing my efforts um, and then would recommend instead just immediately going on medication. And I've shared with him a couple of times that I'm really concerned about taking medication, particularly when I am hoping to get pregnant. And I'm just not sure how that would work out being on that medication while trying to conceive at the same time. And I have genuine concerns and I, I don't feel like they're being heard or acknowledged by him. I feel like I've been dismissed in many ways as I've had those discussions about it. And so I'm here today to look and see if there are other solutions, if there are other options. So we see from um, the video that Yasmin is um, 37 years old. She has a BMI actually in the overweight category of 28. Um, she's worked hard with diet and, and exercise and lifestyle changes to lose weight. Her A1C is 5.6%. Um, although we don't usually check fasting insulins in HOMA IR, certainly she's got a high fasting insulin and her, um, her HOMA IR um, indicates that she has significant insulin resistance. Her blood pressure, her diastolic blood pressure is slightly elevated, as is her, are her triglycerides and her aminotransferases. So she potentially has um, fatty liver disease, which is very common in people with um, insulin resistance. And if we look at her medical history, she has polycystic ovarian syndrome. She um, potentially has an issue with infertility. She mentioned in the video, she'd been married for five years. And over the last couple of years, they've been trying to start a family. So this seems to be a concern of hers. And she has had an issue with, with overweight since, um, since childhood. So um, she's an African-American woman. And if we look across the United States, we saw previously that there's been an increase in the prevalence of obesity over the years, which is continuing to increase. But this um, actually the, the, the race and ethnicity um, factors play an important role in this. And in fact, the, the ethnicity or the race with the highest obesity are non-Hispanic Blacks in the United States with a prevalence in adults of 50%. Second to that would be Hispanics around 46% and non-Hispanic whites about 42%. So there are definitely variations across race and ethnicity with respect to, um, to obesity prevalence. And this is an interesting study that looked at um, body image satisfaction as a function of BMI. So this was were questionnaires to both men and women. And what you can see here is the men and women who had sort of high scores with respect to self-rated appearance had the lower BMI. So you see correlations here. The higher the BMI, the lower, if you will, the, um, the self-rated appearance. And then in, in sort of the, the low scores, if you will, were highest in people with the highest BMI. And so we see both in men and women, self-rated appearance is affected by their BMI. And then if we look on the right from the same survey, now broken down into men and women, actually the higher satisfaction was in black men. 
and the lowest satisfaction was in white men, but you can see that in women, although the highest satisfaction with body image was in black women, it was lower than in men. And similarly, the lowest satisfaction was in white women, and that was lower in women than in men. So there seems to be also um, variation in body image satisfaction, not only by race and ethnicity, but also by sex. Um, healthcare encounters also are experienced differently among people of color, whether they're black or Hispanic. People of color, as we saw with Yasmin, um, often feel that they're being dismissed disregarded, maybe devalued and excluded from decision-making, that their complaints are not being taken seriously. And this results in a high unmet need, loss of trust in healthcare, sometimes delay in seeking healthcare as well. And healthcare providers tend to view, um, view healthcare as, as neutral and objective, but, uh, but people of color sometimes are viewed as perhaps not as educated as their counterparts that are white, maybe unreliable, less, quote unquote, reliable patients. So this implicit or sometimes explicit bias can have a significant effect, not only in obesity management, but also in the management of many other chronic diseases, as we see here. And these biases are not only for people of color, but also for obesity in general. Um, there is implicit and explicit bias and which often can affect the way that we manage patients with obesity. Healthcare providers often prefer to treat obesity with lifestyle um, modification as opposed to pharmacologic therapy. In fact, if we look at the data, only 2% of patients who are eligible for pharmacotherapy actually receive the pharmacotherapy, and this is for a number of, of different reasons. As endocrinologists in general, we're aware of the social stigma associated with, with um, obesity, and the socioeconomic status is an important factor to consider, so the social determinants of health as we're managing obesity. But in other specialties or PCPs oftentimes do exhibit biases that may interfere with seeking, offering, and choosing evidence-based treatments for persons with obesity. There may be lack of knowledge about obesity management and cultural awareness, the belief I think that is somewhat prevalent is that obesity is the fault of the patient and not a disease and not a physiologic issue. And I think this plays into, into lack of treatment sometimes as well. And the ultimate sort of futility of the therapy that oftentimes um, clinicians um, feel. And I think with certainly with today's agents and the weight loss that we're seeing, this is changing. So Persons with obesity, because of these biases, oftentimes switch doctors, um, they are, uh, feel like they're being stigmatized, and oftentimes have poor communication with their healthcare providers. So the science of obesity treatment and anti-obesity medications really has evolved over time. If we look at the left, we see sort of the quote-unquote early days of treatment of other metabolic disorders, such as hypertension, dyslipidemia type two diabetes, oftentimes were not treated aggressively. We didn't have the evidence base perhaps in the medications, but also um, these were felt to be or thought to be sort of lifestyle disorders and may not have been treated as aggressively. And certainly today with the medications, we have the data we have about the importance of managing these metabolic conditions. It really is um, in the standards of care to aggressively manage cardiovascular risk factors, 
um, and type 2 diabetes, including, I should say, type 2 diabetes. And the same has happened with anti-obesity medication. Certainly in the past, there were medications that did not have the type of weight reduction and the maintenance of this reduction that we perhaps needed. There were a lot of safety concerns. Many of anti-obesity anti medications in the past were taken off the market due to, to various safety concerns. And then um, moving fast forwarding to today, we have new agents um, with, which are sufficiently efficacious to provide true evidence-based clinical benefit. Um, they are safer and better tolerated as well, though we clearly need to discuss side effects with patients at each encounter. And, um, and some of them even with proven um, cardiovascular mortality benefits, specifically the GLP-1 receptor agonist. So we're sort of making the same shift with anti-obesity medications today. And we know from various studies, this happens to be one study with the combination of fentramine and, and topiramate. You see here weight loss, sort of the red bars going down is weight loss in each individual patient. So you have some patients gaining, quite a few patients losing with lifestyle modification on the left, but certainly a drastic change when the um, lifestyle modification, when you add pharmacotherapy with more patients losing weight and losing a greater amount of weight during the course of the trial. We've seen this before. I would just say that there are five approved medications for long-term use in patients with overweight and obesity that have different mechanisms of action. And as we'll see, really the most potent, particularly for a patient um, with type 2 diabetes, but, but also for people without diabetes, would be the GLP-1 receptor agonist, loraglutide and semaglutide. So if we look at phase three trials, and this is looking in people without diabetes, and you see here across um, several agents that, um, that are approved um, and some that are in clinical development, such as terzepatide, you can see, for example, with semaglutide in the step one trial, 68 weeks, a mean percent weight loss reduction of 15%. So this really had not been seen previously. And this again is an approved medication for obesity and investigational at this point, but in a study called Surmount 1, looking at the dual GIP and GLP-1 receptor agonist. And here we just see two doses, the lower dose five milligrams and the higher dose 15 milligrams with the 15 milligram dose a 21% average reduction in body weight. So again, we're, we have agents today which can produce double digit reductions in body weight. If we look at the agents, and I'm gonna show this in two slides, and this is important because it can be downloaded, um, and this is one of the free practice aids, but very important as we're speaking to patients to set expectations with respect to how much weight we anticipate the patient will lose. So I won't go into this in, in great detail, but you can see here um, sort of coded with the, the plus signs, what proportion of patients would be expected to lose five, 10, 15, or even 20% on body weight for the given agent. And then on the right, the, the more important side effects, which need to be discussed with patients as we're prescribing these medications. And what we can see here, once again, certainly with loraglutide and semaglutide, the GLP-1 receptor agonist, having the greatest amount of weight loss, and then the 
the agent terzepatide that's currently in phase three of clinical development, having even more weight loss, and important to discuss the potential side effects, which in this case are primarily gastrointestinal in nature, and also the contraindications, which would be patients with a history of pancreatitis um, or patients and or patients with a history, either personal or family history of medullary thyroid carcinoma or MEN2. And looking at these agents, and particularly this is looking here at women with um, polycystic ovarian syndrome and obesity, and this is looking at a couple of studies, so looking at liraglutide versus placebo, and then also a 24-week study that looked at the long-acting GLP-1 receptor agonist exenatide once weekly, uh, either alone or in combination with the SGLT2 inhibitor dapagliflozin, um, also here, um, fentramine and topiramate was looked at, and it looks at different factors that were improved and were shown in green and blue, I should say, were the best outcomes and in green, the second best outcomes. But you can see very nice outcomes with, with any of these um, medications, whether it's GLP-1 receptor agonist, SGLT2 inhibitors, the combination, and even fentramine and topiramate. But um, you will see that the combination of uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist and SGLT2 inhibitor did very nicely with respect to body weight, BMI, fasting glucose, improving insulin sensitivity, so reducing the HOMA-IR, triglycerides, and also the um, free androgen um, index, which is an issue in, in women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, is um, hyperandrogenism. So these could be important therapies for women with PCOS to lose weight and have improvements in other cardiometabolic risk factors. Certainly all of the medications that I've discussed are contraindicated in pregnancy, but should a woman like Yasmin become pregnant, um, the weight loss goal really um, is, is to actually increase some weight during the pregnancy. Clearly, weight loss and inadequate weight gain during pregnancy increases the risk of small for gestational age infants by up to 50%. And the recommendation is that women with obesity gain anywhere from 10 to 20 pounds during pregnancy. In treating patients with obesity, it's important to establish a so-called virtuous cycle in their management. So if we start on the left, we need to set achievable and realistic weight loss goals, develop a management plan to reach these goals, and then the patient can start on this plan. We certainly hope as we go around the cycle here that the goal is met, the plan is working, Distress, if there's any, is reduced, and there's meaningful benefit that's noticed by the patient. And this encourages adherence to the plan. And if needed, we can add new goals at that point, and then the cycle continues. So the key takeaways here are to provide um, empathetic care with an awareness of disparities in the social determinants of health. Offer treatment without bias using non-judgmental patient-centered strategies. Counsel patients about factors that may be contributing to weight gain, lifestyle, behavior, genetics, environmental factors, very common obesogenic medications, as we'll see in the next case. And the current anti-obesity medications have different safety and efficacy profiles than now discontinued agents. And clearly, we need to discuss the safety and the expected efficacy with these agents. 
We need to recognize the multifactorial mechanism of action, key efficacy and long-term safety data, including the benefits of approved and emerging options in anti-obesity medications on comorbidities, initiate anti-obesity medica medications to construct long-term regimens to safely and effectively achieve realistic weight goals and address particularly weight particular weight management challenges, recognize the need to address cardiometabolic and hormonal effects of PCOS as an important factor complicating obesity management in some women, and a sequential approach to addressing competing goals may be needed. For example, here, weight loss and pregnancy. So certainly in, in a woman like this who has PCOS, we want to lose weight. Our first goal may be the weight loss with medications that, um, that we may, we wouldn't want to continue during pregnancy, but have the weight loss, perhaps withdraw those medications and then see if, if she can become pregnant with the weight loss improvement in insulin sensitivity and now ovulating. Let's now discuss a case of a patient who needs weight loss prior to surgery. And Hi, my name is Nora McElhenney. I'm 65 years old and I'm married with uh, two grown children. I'm really hoping that you can help me. Um, I'm here today because I really need a knee replacement, but the surgeon won't work on me until I lose weight and get my A1C down. Um, I've struggled with my weight my whole life. I got bariatric surgery and I thought that would be the solution to all my problems, but menopause hit and all the weight just crept back on. I, my regular doctor sent me to you. I don't think he understood all the information that my glucose monitor was spitting out. And it, it just doesn't seem right. I've been waking up all groggy and shaky and my sugars will be like 50 or 60. And I know I have to eat something sugary and I eat until I feel better, but I feel pretty lousy all day. And I, I feel like my metabolism is broken. I'm sorry I'm such a mess. I just, I'm very close to giving up. So we see Nora has a number of issues. She's a 65-year-old woman. She's got um, severe obesity. Her BMI is 50, very poorly controlled diabetes with an A1C close to 9%. Her blood pressure is elevated. For someone with diabetes, certainly her LDL cholesterol is high. And we see that she's having not only a high A1C, but a lot of hypoglycemia, it appears, that she's having as well, which is impacting um, her, her daily life, but also likely contributing to her obesity. She has insulin-treated type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, osteoarthritis. She previously had a sleeve gastrectomy and has increased weight since having that surgery. She suffers from depression and anxiety, and again, frequent hypoglycemia. So this is a patient with severe obesity that has 
significant metabolic, biomechanical, and psychological complications of her obesity. If we look at her medication, she's on a sulfonylurea and insulin, basal insulin at 42 units of bedtime. She's on a torvastatin, which we likely need to increase and make sure she's taken, blood pressure medication, an antidepressant that may be increasing her body weight as well, and then medications for pain. So she is clearly caught in a so-called vicious cycle here. She's having hypoglycemia. To treat this hypoglycemia, she's overeating, which not only increases her weight, but increases her glucose as well. The weight worsens her osteoarthritic pain. The osteoarthritic pain limits her exercise. The lack of exercise increases weight gain. Higher weight increases insulin resistance. And what's been happening is that the dose of basal insulin has been increased further. To top that off, she's also on a sulfonylurea, so an insulin secretagogue. So her type 2 diabetes therapy is just all wrong. And, and, and that's one thing that will help her quite a bit to improve that. Um, and many patients are treated with too much basal insulin. She's not quite a 0.5 units per kilogram. She's somewhere about, around 0.3 or so, but she's clearly on too much basal insulin because she's having nighttime and early morning hypoglycemia and likely having significant postprandial hyperglycemia, which needs to be treated with agents specific to that. And in fact, this is a patient that should be on a GLP-1 receptor agonist and SGLT-2 inhibitor therapies that can improve her glucose safely without hypoglycemia and that can cause weight reduction. And the Distress needs to be evaluated very carefully in a patient like this. We need to, if we look on the left, set realistic goals about not only the weight target, but the speed at which she can achieve this target. Um, importantly, distress affects motivation, as we see with her and many of our patients, to initiate and maintain behavioral change and repeated unsuccessful attempts at weight loss, particularly if the, the expectations are too high, can lead to some of this distress guilt, hopelessness, and increase the distress. And really, if we look at the, the figure on the right, there's a bi-directional um, relationship between obesity and common mental health disorders, depression, anxiety, where the obesity makes the depression and anxiety worse, and the worsening depression and anxiety and sort of hopelessness makes the obesity worse. So this also speaks to this vicious cycle that we need to try to break and um, a need to make sure we support a patient such as Nora. Now we saw that she had a sleeve gastrectomy. This is looking actually at patients who had um, bariatric surgery or Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. But the point it makes is that initially there's weight loss, you see over time, 0.5, so six months, but the patients take different trajectories after the initial weight loss with some patients continuing to lose weight, other patients sort of stagnating, you see in group two, and some patients increasing weight. And this is seen with, with various metabolic um, procedures and something that we've seen with our patient Nora as well. So there's certainly strategies to address weight regain or insufficient weight loss after bariatric surgery as, as, as she's had. So after procedures, we could have sort of more advanced procedures or revisions of procedures. So these will be surgical interventions, uh, or um, we can have behavioral therapy, 
more dietary counseling, or pharmacological therapy as well with any of the agents that are currently approved. And really, I saw that the optimal time to initiate anti-obesity medications may be at the time of weight plateau rather than after weight regain. So this is not uncommon in our patients who've had bariatric procedures. I think another point that's important in this case are some of the changes that occur not only in, during the late perimenopause, but also postmenopausally with, with respect to hormones. So reductions, obviously, in, in estrogen, which can occur for up to two years after the final menstrual period, increases in FSH, changes in body composition, so increased fat mass and decreased lean body mass, changes also in, in energy intake and expenditure, so a reduction in energy expenditure and fat oxidation, and then changes in lipid profiles, which can increase cardiovascular risk. So this is something physiologic that can occur in women who are going through and are postmenopausal, as our patient is. If we look at suggested treatment algorithms, and this can be downloaded as well, and I'll just go through this relatively quickly, but for patients with a BMI of over 30 or over 27 with at least one weight-related comorbidity, lifestyle is, is critically um, important and should be done with everyone, but we should consider weight loss medications, particularly if there, if there are comorbidities in these patients. And you see at the bottom that we should be individualizing based on patient characteristics. For example, in a patient with cardiovascular disease or very high risk of cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes, as Nora is, a GLP-1 receptor agonist such as liraglutide, semaglutide, when it, or terzepatide, quite frankly, um, for her glycemic control would also have secondary um, benefit on weight as well. If there's a history of medullary thyroid carcinoma, the GLP-1 receptor agonist-based therapies are contraindicators, so you wouldn't use one of those. Their data with the GLP-1 receptor agonist and the dual agonist actually in patients with fatty liver disease, for example. So I think we need to look or we need to look at patient characteristics and then the medications as we're deciding which medication to um, prescribe to a patient. And if we look all the way on the top right, with respect to bariatric surgery indicated and certainly acceptable in patients with type 2 diabetes with a BMI of over 30 and, and patients uh, with or without comorbidities with a BMI of over 40. If we look specifically at glucose lowering medications and was shown here in this forest plot, anything that's to the left of zero favors the treatment, basically meaning there is weight loss. Anything to the right, there is weight gain. So importantly, you see the GLP-1 receptor agonist being the most potent medications, not only with respect to glucose lowering, but certainly from, from a weight loss perspective. Um, also, the SGLT2 inhibitors play an important role and can, can cause weight loss. And this is why for this patient, perhaps a GLP-1 receptor agonist or dual agonist such as terzepatide with an SGLT2 inhibitor, if there are no contraindications, would be important. But you see the therapy that she's on currently, basal insulin and sulfonylurea, actually cause weight gain. And not only do they cause weight gain, but they also result in hypoglycemia, which is an issue that she is having. 
We need to set realistic expectations, and we know in weight loss um, trials and in clinical practice, the patients with type 2 diabetes lose less body weight for a number of reasons than their non-diabetic counterparts. And this has shown placebo-subtracted weight loss for various agents. We can see with semaglutide 2.4 milligrams weekly, um, a 6.2% weight reduction. This is a uh, um, 72 weeks in patients with type 2 diabetes. The absolute reduction in these patients in this trial was about 10%, so 9.6%. And you can see that it is more potent than the GLP-1 receptor agonist liraglutide once a day. And we're moving now to these um, peptide-based multi-agonists, the so-called unimolecular multi-agonists, so combinations of GLP-1 agonism, with GIP agonism, which is the second incretin hormone, and even triple agonists, GIP, GLP-1, and glucagon. And there's some GLP-1 and glucagon dual agonists as well. And not to go through all of this, but the bottom line is that some of these receptors are co-expressed in tissues, such as the brain. So you've got GLP-1 and GIP agonism at, at areas of the brain that are very important in energy regulation and appetite and satiety. On the beta cell, where you get the increase in nutrient-stimulated insulin release, and some are unique to certain tissues, with GIP being expressed, for example, on adipose tissue, with glucagon being expressed in the liver, and GLP-1 and GIP receptors not being expressed there, and very important with glucagon, potential increase in energy expenditure, not just a reduction in body weight. So these are a number of agents. The one that's currently approved is terzepatide for diabetes, which is a GIP and GLP-1 dual agonist. And this is um, in phase three and being reviewed by FDA for obesity and for weight loss. So how much weight loss occurs with terzepatide? Again, terzepatide being the dual GIP and GLP-1 receptor agonist. If we look in patients with type 2 diabetes, we see in, in a study called SURPASS-3 and in SURPASS-4 in patients on oral agents where terzepatide was added, you have with a 15 milligram dose up to 14% relative weight reduction. That's the, the mean. And you see a dose-dependent effect from 5, 10 to the 15 milligram dose. And these are studies of, for diabetes. They're not weight loss studies. In a study called Surmount 2, there, this is a study specifically for weight loss. So with diet and exercise counseling with a 500 kilocalorie deficit diet daily, um, significantly greater weight reduction with the 15 and 10 milligram dose of terzepatide over 17 72 weeks compared with placebo, and the mean reduction was almost 16% over the 72-week um, trial period. And in surmount one, and this is a study in people without diabetes, where you would expect greater weight reduction over 72 weeks in these patients, again, dose-dependent reduction in body weight with the mean body weight at the end of 72 weeks of around 21% in the patients treated with a 15 milligram dose. Again, these have not yet, um, not yet been approved specifically for obesity, but approved for diabetes management. So the key takeaways here is obesity management requires long-term follow-up. For example, routine visits to monitor and reevaluate the individual needs of the patient over the long-term. 
Accordingly, endocrinologists need to become expert in overcoming barriers to long-term obesity management. Critical to success of any management plan is providing anticipatory guidance to patients on the amount of weight loss expected and common adverse events and how they are used. So how to initiate, how to dose escalate or titrate, how to switch from other medications if needed, and obviously medication access is critically important. We should acknowledge patient disappointment caused by failing to meet unrealistic and unattainable expectations from prior weight loss efforts. I think this affirmation helps patients move forward. Be aware of the glycemic and non-glycemic effects of current and emerging anti-obesity medications, including pre and post-surgical use and leverage mechanism of action for current and emerging anti-obesity medications to address personal weight management challenges and improve treatment satisfaction, including in persons with type two diabetes. And again, going back to our case, I think there's a lot we can do for this patient to explain to her why she's had sort of this, this failure and success and a lot that we can do with respect to changing her therapy and having her lose enough weight to be able to get her knee surgery and hopefully be able to exercise more and go from this vicious cycle I showed to the virtuous cycle that I showed in the previous case. Thank you. That ends our discussion for today. I hope that you found this informative and this is information that you could use with your patients with obesity. And I think one of the key factors here is the importance of identifying this disease early and managing it in conjunction with the patient to achieve the best outcomes. I appreciate your attention and thank you very much. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity has been developed in partnership with the Healthcare Theater from the University of Delaware. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KEW860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.